forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Reverend Sharon Risher is my guest today. Now, she knows something about looking evil in the face and learning to forgive. You see, Sharon's mother and several other loved ones were killed in the Charleston Massacre in 2015 by a young white supremacist who hated black people so much that he simply wanted to kill them. And so he did, as they met for prayer meeting one night at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. You're gonna hear the story of what happened that night and how it changed my guest's life forever. Today, we discuss the senseless gun violence that took the life of nine people in Charleston, Sharon's journey to forgive the unrepentant killer, how kindness can transform those who hate, and we finish up by talking about sensible gun reform. Before we jump into our conversation, here's a little bit about my guest. Reverend Sharon Risher is a former hospital chaplain and trauma specialist who is now a national advocate for gun law reform and a spokesperson for Everytown Survivor Network and Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. She's appeared on CNN, BBC Radio, Good Morning America, The Today Show, and CBS, and has been interviewed or written for numerous publications. Her book is entitled, For Such a Time as This, Hope and Forgiveness After the Charlton Massacre. And thanks for listening to the Do Justice Podcast. I know you'll enjoy our conversation today. Reverend Risher, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm humbled and I'm always grateful as a preacher, you know, we love to talk. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to reach people that I would normally probably wouldn't get to reach. So thank you. Well, let's just go back uh, just a few years ago, June 17, 2015. It's a day that changed your life forever. Tell us what happened that day. So on June 17th, 2015, a young white supremacist, 21 years old, Dylan Roof, had formulated a plan in his mind of what he was going to do when he walked into Mother Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church on that day. He knew what he was going to do. He sat through almost an hour of the Bible study, which happened to be on the chapter of Mark for the parable of the sower. Mm. He sat there, he listened to them. And when they were ready to be dismissed, they were all standing in a circle, holding hands, He pulled out his Glock 
and started to slaughter them like like they were nothing. Mm. My understanding is they um, tried to run, tried to hide under tables, and all that did was give him an opportunity to walk over to where they were and to shoot them on the spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a slaughter. Wow. I mean, the way you tell that story of what actually happened there is just, you know, it, it's chilling. It's um, evil. And and what was your connection with this particular uh, terrible atrocity that happened right here in the United States of America just a couple of years ago? Okay, on, on that fateful night, my mother, Mrs. Ethel Lance, who was 70 years old, very spry and spunky. My cousin, Mrs. Susie Jackson, was 87 years old. And then my young cousin, Tywanza Sanders, who was 26 years old. And there were other members out of that nine that was killed, that there was the spiritual connection and the fact that they all went to Emmanuel. And even though I've not been a part of that congregation for such a long time, they live in me because after my mother joined that church in 1974, that was our family church. That was our Christian family. So to have all of those people in that church, connected maybe not through uh, biological blood, but through the blood of Christ, makes them all my family, even the survivors. You Mm know, um, yeah. So you were working as a uh, hospice chaplain or a hospital chaplain, I believe, down in Dallas, Texas in Mm -hmm. 2015. And so tell us you know, how you received word and then in a little bit of what happened after you found out about this. Okay. So I, my actual uh, title was trauma chaplain. Mm-hmm. So I was part of the emergency room trauma team. Anytime we got uh, shootings or really bad car accidents or whatever, uh, I was part of that team that would be there to help the families out as much as I can, to make phone calls, to be able to assist them while waiting to find out about their loved ones. I would be a part of that team when the doctors went in to announce that someone had died. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So being a part of crisis has been a part of my life work. But that particular night was such a strange night because I had been working with a family whose grandfather had died. And they kind of knew that he was not going to be on earth long. So I think they had already reconciled in their minds that he was dying and that it was not going to be a surprise. So they were very stoic in their emotions that night. And usually I'm pretty good about having all the paperwork I need because I'm all around the hospital. But that particular night, 
I did not have the paperwork I needed. So I excused myself and said, I will be right back. Give me an opportunity to get to my office and I'll be right back. Well, I had left my cell phone on my desk. And I know it was the spirit of God that said, check your phone. So I went over to the desk and I checked my phone and realized that I had several missed calls from my daughter in North Carolina. And that was very, um, that was just not her. She knows that if something happens real bad, that she could call me on my pager. But anyway, I called her back and she reported that my nephew, one of my sisters, my sister Esther's son, called and said something had happened at the church and he didn't know what was going on. And But when my daughter said, uh, Mama, something going on at the church, and my first thing was, what church? And she said, Granny's church. So I'm in, okay, I've got these people waiting on me. I told my daughter, I said, okay, let me finish doing what, I, what I'm doing, and then I'll start to make some telephone calls. So then I called my sister and I had a chance to talk to my nephew, and he said, Auntie, something bad has happened at Granny's church, and nobody's talking about it, but we're on our way down to mm -hmm. the church. Mm -hmm. So that's how that whole night began for me. So you find out, here you are, you are a uh, trauma chaplain. This is what you do. You deal with people that have been involved in shootings and whose family members are the victims of, of shootings. And now here you are uh, with your own family, the victim of this kind of, of crime and trauma. And, and so you eventually, uh, and, and by the way, I should mention that, that you have a book that you've written and it's called for such a time as this hope and forgiveness after the Charleston massacre. Um, and, and in your book, you describe you know, how you eventually uh, made it to South Carolina. Um, you actually show up in court with this killer there. Tell us a little bit about what happened in court when you went there, you know, your experience uh, seeing this person who'd killed your family in cold blood, seeing this person for the first time. When you said the word evil, that's what it was, sitting there looking at evil in the flesh. Every morning I had to, I prayed real hard and asked God to give me the strength to be in that courtroom, control my emotions, and to continually try to look at him to try to figure out, here is this... I'm going to say it like this. Here is this skinny little white boy that doesn't look like he weighs more than 125 pounds. How is it that this young man get into his heart such evilness and hatred that the way he needed to manifest all of that was to go into the house of God and kill? Mm. It was like it was just permeating off of him. And I had to keep myself 
in check. So I, I, I knew every morning going into that courtroom, it was like I was putting on my armor. Like I had a job to do because I felt like being in that courtroom made me feel not so hopeless and helpless because that's the way I felt. I had already been dealing with guilt feelings of not being in Charleston. And I know that that's crazy because that's just the way it was. Mm -hmm. I lived in Dallas, Texas, but I carried that guilt of not being there, not being able to be there with the other nine families. But yet I was in Dallas, Texas by myself, freaking out. Mm. But being in that courtroom, I can't even put into words. We were sitting there, the families, and I guess nervous energy or anxiety. Some of the younger, like my daughter and some of the other uh, victims, grandchildren, sat there and was trying to figure out how how they could take him out. My daughter was like, had on these heels. And she was like, if I aim, because that's how close we sat. If I aim my shoes right, maybe I could, the heel of my shoe would hit him in the head. And, and somebody else said, if I had one of those Indian poison darts, maybe I could shoot it and it would hit him. Because all we wanted was for him to understand the devastation that he had caused. And he sat in that courtroom stiff as a board. He wouldn't look around. You could never get eye contact with him. He sat there like a board, like everything that was going on was beyond him and he wasn't involved. And that was what hurt more than anything for you to sit there in your own little world while every one of us had to deal with our loved ones being gone and not coming back. Mm. It was in that courtroom that I think your, your sister got up and made a statement where she said, I forgive you. Is that where that happened? No, that's not where that happened. That was, uh, his uh, bond hearing which okay. was held 48 hours after the killings and they were having his bond hearing and um, family members were invited to make a statement to him. Mm -hmm. And that's when my sister Nadine uh, said that uh, she forgave him. And, and that's a very complicated thing because, um, well, and, and I'm just I, listening to your story, and I'm thinking, yeah, uh, you know, this is, um, boy, I mean, this happens to the people you love the dearest. There's no, there's absolutely no justification or reason for, for this heinous act. And I don't know, I, I don't think I could forgive somebody that quickly and that easily, Um so your sister gets up. She she says, you know, I forgive you, and and you say, hey, 
I'm not ready to forgive yet. I mean, that's essentially no. kind of where you were at, right? Right. I was still in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. The They were killed Wednesday night, Friday morning. They were having his bond hearing. So I hadn't even reached Charleston at that time mm. because I was still trying to figure out how am I going to get myself on a plane? What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And I had my TV on 24-7 and I was in my bedroom and I heard my sister's voice. And that's when I went to the living room uh, TV and I heard her say those words and all I could do was collapse and scream because I couldn't believe that she had gotten up there and said that. And, and then the next person said it and I'm like, what in the world? You haven't even, nobody's even had time to digest what happened. And you're standing up there talking about forgiveness. But it took me a minute to reconcile in my brains why that happened. And that's, you know, in the book. But no, I was not forgiving. I was not wanting to let him off the hook. Even being a reverend, I... I was not being a reverend. I was being a heartbroken daughter. So what was your journey to eventually forgive this, this child who killed uh, your mother and your, your family? That journey was very hard. I did a lot of praying. I did a lot of yelling at God. I did a lot of sleeping because I didn't even want to get up out the bed mm-hmm. to face reality. And um, I was uh, asked to preach at a uh, World Communion Sunday in Martinsville, Virginia on October 1st, 2017. And somewhere, well, Now I understand, you know, God, at that time, the word forgiveness just kind of spilled out my mouth. Mm -hmm. And right then it was the realization that God had said, my child, you've done the work. I know your heart. You know my commandments. You can let that go. You could free yourself of that burden that you've been carrying. And um, it was just, you know, I just had this like real warm feeling for a couple of seconds. And I was free of carrying that particular burden, knowing that uh, God knew me. He knew the transformation he had done in my life, and he knew that I would get there. But God allowed me to get there in my own way. Mm -hmm. Because once you get there, you don't ever have to worry about doubting yourself and doubting the power of God. And I was able to move on from that heaviness that had been holding me down. You bring that up, that burden that was lifted. Um, 
when we forgive, what are the benefits in that forgiveness for us? And I think you've already inferred and, and told us some of that, but why is that a good thing? It's a good thing because it's not about them. It's not about the perpetrator. It's about you. I don't know about anybody else, but I had lost like 40 pounds. My eating habits had changed. It was this weight. It was like I did a sermon one time about having a weight tied around your leg. And the more you try to move forward, that weight pulls you back. It, it drags on. And so forgiving releases you of all of that anger and rage that you carry. So somehow you can get back to trying to be your normal self because you're not normal when you're carrying around so much rage and anger and hurt. You know what I mean? Can can you understand that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's what forgiving him did for me. Mm-hmm. I was able to say, okay, now how do I can go on and try to be um, a normal person for however normal, whatever that means. And forgiveness doesn't in any way justify or excuse what has been done by the the perpetrator. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Because, see, you know, what has happened has happened. Mm -hmm. And forgiving someone meant that your loved ones or whatever has happened would bring them back. I would have said it the first opportunity I had, but I know that that's not reality. And so I just say to people who deal with having to maybe not having to forgive someone for killing somebody or whatever, but there are all kinds of issues that we deal with as people mm-hmm. that we somehow have to find a way to reconcile that. And if you're a person of faith, scripture says we forgive. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that that story i know that that was the most difficult time of your life and um thank you for just opening your heart and and talking about that let's talk about let's talk about white supremacy and racism in america i know that uh after you experienced this terrible tragedy in your life by someone who was a white supremacist this is what he, he the title he claims or claimed um and probably still claims. Uh, for those who may not know, what is white supremacy? And um, what is the history of white supremacy in this country? Well, white supremacy started when uh, they captured the slaves 400 years ago and brought them to America. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of white supremacy. White supremacy to me in my mind, I haven't looked it up in the dictionary or anything, but white supremacy is the notion that white people feel that they own and that everything that goes on in a marriage 
because should come under their auspice. And if you're not white, then you're not capable of being a good person, that there is something wrong with you if you're not white. So That's what white supremacy means to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just hearing you describe that, it's like, really? People still believe this, right? But there are people. Uh, I mean, how many people do we know? Like, are there numbers that tell us uh, how many folks subscribe to this? And I, I, obviously there are degrees to this too, because you have your open and avowed white supremacists, and then you might have those who... Um, you know, subscribe to some of those ideas uh, that are that are hanging around uh, a little more openly. But what are your what are your thoughts on like how prevalent is this? Well, for one thing, after what happened in Charleston, I didn't I I, I didn't even know. I mean, I knew that there was racism and all of that, mm-hmm. but after this, I realized that there were millions of people that are on websites and different groups that are espousing mean, nasty, hateful things against other people. And and it was like, really? I can't say that, you know, I've had like direct uh, things that have happened to me, but just being part of the black population, um, the racism and white supremacies, it, it, it's been out there, mm-hmm. but after that, and go and and realizing how many uh, people are out there espousing this, I'm like, they're just under underneath all of the stuff that we try to do to say that all people people and we all have an opportunity to be able to live in America and do the best we can with our families and you know you know we talk about the American dream everybody no matter what color you are you want to have a decent life you want to be able to work and be able to have the things that any other person would want a house and to educate your children to just be able to live a life in peace and to see that the the white supremacists want to knock you down to make you feel like you're not worthy because you're not the same color as me i i it just overwhelmed me and now what we have what we have going on now in America, it's like they finally have an opportunity to be who they really are, mm-hmm. and they don't have to. And they don't have to hide now on the dark websites and and the groups that they have going on. That they have been given the opportunity to come out. Mm. And that's troubling because it seems like those in the highest levels of our government now are giving voice to many of uh, their views, um, if not openly supporting them, at least these people feel like they can come out of, out of the shadows now, like you're saying, and, and uh, they can, you know, say whatever they want and um, uh, let their views it's be definitely, heard. Definitely. I mean, oh man, it's just so much. I mean, I mean, particularly what, our president said about Baltimore this weekend. 
I mean, how is it that the president of one of the biggest countries, a country that have welcomed all kinds of people from everywhere, because none of us was here except Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So how do you get around all of that and say things that he says and 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 he seemed like he stirs it up mm-hmm. it's just uh yeah. it's just mind-blowing it really is so let's talk about how we can affect positive change in, in this particular area because in your book you write about how you became acquainted with uh, a former white supremacist. I think his name is Arno McKellis. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Right. And he had been a member of a skinhead organization as a teenager. Uh, what was it about him, or what what led him to change his views? And um, you know, today I, I believe he's actually out there campaigning against white supremacy. If I'm not misunderstanding. Yes. Okay. So I met um, I met Arno at a speaking engagement where we go into um, schools and they, the school puts on a program called living legends and they gather people from all over the United States with varying stories about things that have happened and who they are in Arnold had the job of picking me up from the airport. And I had met him one time before, and I kind of kept my distance from him because I knew what he had been affiliated with. But that particular time, he picked me up from the airport. I was very leery about that because in my mind, I already had preconceived notions about, well, if you did this, uh, certainly that must have meant that you were a bad person. But Arnold talked to me and explained to me his story. And he said one day he was at work and um, was hungry, didn't have any money for lunch. And they were all sitting in the lunchroom and people kind of just sat there and ate their own food. And a black gentleman came over to him and offered him a part of his sandwich. And he said to me that was the day that he knew all of the craziness that he had been indoctrinated with, all of the thoughts he had about black people was just not true. Hmm. Because the same person who he hated was the same person that gave him something to eat. Wow, that's simple. Yes. And when he told me that, you know, it was like, how can I continue to harbor feelings against him? Because the same way God picked me up and transformed my life, Arnold has that same opportunity. And even if we're not a part of the same religious uh, area, And I don't even think uh, Arno, I think Arno, I'm not sure of his religious affiliation. I Mm -hmm. think Arno maybe is a Buddhist or something now. Mm -hmm. That he understands that transformation can happen and that not everybody 
that are people of color or black people are bad people. And that really touched my heart. It really touched my heart. And, and Arno and I are now good friends. We have had speaking engagements together and planned to do some more things. And he's just been out here and he has uh, led several other white supremacists to getting out of that movement and doing good. Mm, that's great. So mm-hmm. basically it was kindness that was shown to him that was the first thing that kind of led him out of, out of his hatred. It I sounds know. like, you know, maybe, maybe if, maybe for all these white supremacists out there, maybe if people come to them with kindness, mm-hmm. the love of God, you know, not asking you to change who you are, but to show you the love of God, then I believe that you could be turned around because nobody I feel could turn away from somebody being kind to you. You know, this is, this is powerful stuff because it's so counterintuitive. It's so, it goes against the grain, you know, especially yes. when we've been wronged, when we, we know someone hates us the last thing we want to do is be kind to them or as Jesus said, to love our enemies. And yet what you're saying is that this is what will ultimately change these people who have so much hatred in their heart against us. I do believe, and you know, that's a hard thing, you know, cause there's so many of them, but uh, that's all we could do. We could just be the best people we could be. We could show love and kindness and bit by bit, one person at a time like Arno, you know, and what he has done and everybody else who's out there understanding and believing if we truly, truly try to walk the way God has laid it out for us, that people will get the message one by one. I want to shift our conversation a little bit to uh, what you're doing now. Tell us what changed because you were you were you know involved in chaplaincy um, for for trauma victims, and then this this terrible heinous act happened. Your your mother and other relatives were killed in cold blood by this killer. Um, you embark on this journey. It was one that you didn't intend to go on. It was just you kind of involuntarily now are on this path. And uh, what are you doing today? Well, other than running my mouth everywhere I get. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So uh, what am I doing today? I continue to travel across this country talking about racism. I continue to be a part of Moms Demand Action and the Every Town Survivor Network. And our mission is to educate people on what gun violence do to not only families, but communities, to get people to understand that our lawmakers are the people that have an opportunity to put into place common sense gun laws that won't get every gun off the street, not trying to take away people's uh, Second Amendment right to own and bear arms, but to get them to understand that because you own a gun doesn't mean that you have the right to kill someone, that 
offer yourself up to a universal background check to understand that that a gun is a powerful thing and it it kills and it destroys and so my part in this is to give you a human understanding of the devastation of gun violence and to push our lawmakers into looking at the laws we have and anything that we could do to help tighten up these laws that would uh, deter someone from getting a gun then that's where we are. But see, this whole thing about gun violence, and a lot of it has to do with the underlying currents of what's happening, poverty and and homelessness. All of these things play a part in why people use guns. And a lot of it has to do with just people who are evil. You know, yes, they just yes. evil. Right. And so all of this kind of goes together to create what we have going on. And we know now that I'm not sure of the exact statistic, but more than 75 percent of gun violence victims are African-Americans. Mm. Wow. Uh, in your book, you, you say this, you say prayers and vigils are not enough. As a person of faith, I do believe prayer moves things. So if all these people were actually praying, I think things might be different. But it also takes more than prayers to deal with guns. We need prayers with feet. God gives us prayer, but he also gives us the motivation, the intelligence, and the willingness to take action. Uh, You just basically, you said your, your goal with these organizations and these organizations' goal is not to take guns away every you know every gun away from every person um and and that would be i think an impossible thing anyway considering the right. proliferation of guns in, in america it's like we have the highest i think uh ratio of of you know uh, gun ownership in the world mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. but um but you're saying hey why can't we do some things that are just common sense like universal background checks um and, and mention a few other things there that you think would be common sense gun reform. So they, we have now uh, what we call Urple, and it, that law is about if someone has a uh, documented um, scenarios of domestic violence or things like that, and they have some mental issues, that a responding uh, law enforcement officer who's responding to a call maybe and realize that this person has some issues that uh, might cause them to use a gun, that they could uh, get a, a get a judge to sign off on an order to remove the guns out of that person's household Mm -hmm. for a specific amount of time. And if the person has shown that maybe this might have been a one-time thing or whatever, then their guns could be returned. But the, the, the important part of that is to being able to remove guns from documented 
uh, situations that law enforcement know that the potential of a fatality is very high mm-hmm. because we, you know, you get into mental health and we try to say, well, because people uh, are mentally ill, you know, that's why they shoot people. And, and, and I don't truly believe that that's because of all people, but surely it impacts gun violence, especially in domestic situations. Sure. So if you're a domestic abuser and you have your gun license or whatever it is, and this is a known fact, then that Urple law would give a law enforcement officer to be able to talk to a judge to remove that gun out of that household while this person go through whatever it is that the court deems that they have to go through, and then maybe their gun will be returned. And I'm talking about a person that has a lawful weapon. You know what I mean? And it seems like police officers would probably be in favor of that type of uh, law. And they are. Mm -hmm. I think there are more than 15 states that have already passed herbal laws. Wow. So the... The gun violence prevention movement is so hard and there are so many, many organizations out there. But we all come together on this one thing. What can we do to make the epidemic of gun violence in America be a topic that people really need to understand? Because uh we already know it's no no matter where you are, church, synagogue, theater, festival, whatever it is, that people are going to do what they could do. And all we could do is try to reach the hearts and to push mm-hmm. people when they go to the polls. And that's the most important thing, that we have to vote for people who believe like we believe. And if you don't believe that, then maybe this is not the job for you because then now you're not speaking, you're not uh, doing what your constituents would want. Reverend Sharon Risher, thank you so much for sharing your heart with us today. Uh, just that that story that you you shared with us of of the most uh, difficult time in your life, where you lost your family, many of your family members there to just a senseless act of violence. Um, thank you for telling us also what you are doing now and for your example of of forgiveness and kindness in the face of evil. I appreciate you wanting to continue to put the message that I have out there through your uh, means of communication. I really, really do appreciate that. I hope people know that um, this thing is real and no matter where they are, even if they're behind gated communities that you could be a victim. Mm. So don't sit there and believe that you're safe. Right. Uh, By the way, Reverend Sharon Risher's book is for such a time as this hope and forgiveness after the Charleston massacre. And you can find this book on Amazon. You can find it in bookstores and you can also go to her website, Sharon Risher speaks.com and find out more about her there. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. Email us your comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes of the Do Justice Podcast. Our email is dojusticenow 
at iCloud.com. 